0: Welcome to the Opawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. I've been sitting in the space between the onset of our salvation, if you like, and our checking out of, from the planet and being promoted to glory that gap that we normally call the Christian life. I've been in this space for pushing 40 years and some of you have been here for just a little while and it's great to have you around. Others are sitting there thinking, 40 years? That's nothing. Rod, you're wet behind the ears. Wait till it's 80. To use my uh, under-construction metaphor that I used last week, Work has begun on us as a project, much like that three unit apartment over there that's been built. But it's far from completed, although that one's happening very quickly. We are all building sites in different states of repair or completion. When I looked back on last week's sermon, I think I said to narrowly on the way out, I was trying to preach about sanctification, but I think I might have got scrambled a bit with perseverance. She said, don't worry, you've always got next week. So here we are. It seemed to me there was a blend of those two big ideas. And when I say a big idea, I mean it's a word that's longer than wheelbarrow, which is 11 letters long. So sanctification, that's 13 letters. And it's the process by which God, by his Spirit, is making us whole and holy. And the other word is perseverance, 12 letters, which is what he needs from us, in short, to hang on for the ride. A few weeks ago, I described the process of our initially becoming Christian as a complex dance between a God who acts and seeks us and our will. Predestination or free will are labels that I think are just too simplistic, too black and white to explain this process by themselves. And think about it, if our faith is utterly predetermined by God, then we're mere puppets. But if it's all up to us, and we have to choose to opt in, then we essentially save ourselves. Paradoxically, In other words, there's a contradiction in terms here. It seems that at the same time we choose and are chosen. Go figure that one. Now sanctification is clearly something that God is doing in our lives. You can't sanctify yourself. He makes us holy by adopting us as his children at our new birth, at our conversion and then through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives until we pop. But what about perseverance? You'll find through the New Testament, all through there, verses that exhort us to keep on going, run the race, persevere. Here's just a wee sample that I put together. This is Hebrews. We come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. A big feature of Hebrews is verses like this, lots of them. In James, what good is it, my brothers and sisters? If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? Now, Martin Luther, a Protestant big theologian who was strong on salvation by the grace, he wanted to rip James out of all the Bibles. Didn't like this stuff. 1 Corinthians 15, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you, if otherwise you've believed in vain. Romans 11. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you'll be cut off. It's quite strong stuff, isn't it? And then I've got a few at the bottom, and I could have had another page of these. Up here, I've got most of the New Testament apostolic writers being represented. Yet I've spent the last couple of weeks Reading some of the great New Testament passages to you about the unbreakable love of God for you. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, wrote Paul to the Philippians. It's Esther in my favourite verse. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, wrote Paul in Romans 8, just three chapters before he wrote that in 11. Now Marshall, a modern theologian, his name's I. Howard Marshall, there he is, Now, funny thing, I'm searching for I Howard Marshall's picture. There's a J Howard Marshall, who's quite different. He's an oil millionaire from Texas who in his 90s married Anna Nicole Smith, who was a playboy bunny. So his picture is a really old guy with this very blonde person. I thought, no, that's not the Marshall I'm looking for. Anyway, I Howard, we have the familiar New Testament tension between calls to persevere and assurances of divine protection that should not be smoothed out in favour of guaranteed perseverance or timid uncertainty. See, when he says guaranteed perseverance, there's some say, well, God makes some people persevere in their faith and others fall away. So it's just all predetermined. It's the puppet show. Timid uncertainty refers to people who are concerned that they've stuffed up one too many times and their level of sinfulness now is so bad that they are unforgivable and they've lost their salvation. I've had those conversations many times. Now, it's a bit tricky to try to resolve this tension in 20 minutes between songs on a Sunday morning, except to say, I think the question is a bit of a red herring. It's a distraction from what is really important. Let me explain. Jesus gathers his disciples together. It says after he's been resurrected and just before he's going straight up by ascension. And it's recorded in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. It's his final instructions. And he says this to them. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority on heaven has been given to me and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make converts of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What's wrong with that passage? Are you saying I'm putting up false scriptures, Alan Goldstone? Doesn't say converts, what does it say? Yes, it says disciples. That's it. You've got to be careful of these flash hairy preachers with their PowerPoints and all the rest of it. A disciple is not just a convert to the faith. They are someone with a learning, growing, active faith that is being expressed. Someone on the road for whom no question of have they persevered will arise. Now, they may not be lighting up the world single-handed because, frankly, very few of us do. But they are faithfully walking, sometimes staggering, under the light that they have. They are not perfect. Indeed, they would be appalled at the suggestion that they were. They are you and me. Kerry, that Kerry College was named after, famously said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. I do wonder if that's a bit of a burden. Ninety-nine percent of us are fixed solidly in obscurity. We will live there, we will die there. It's not about being great, it's about being faithful to the call that we have. Now, the position of someone who is once apparently a faithful Christian but is no more is well, whether or not they're saved, what might happen on judgment day, they are clearly not our disciple. That's the point of God's mission to the world. To call to himself a family of Christ-following disciples. God's will for us is that our conversion is just the first step in a long and fruitful Christian life. He will grow a faith in us that will survive the tough times and bear much long-term fruit if we let him. It seems that that complex dance between God's Spirit and our will isn't just at salvation. I think it goes on through our lives. He acts, we respond, and over time we grow. Now, I've got a little movie clip to show you now, and there's a few questions. In this clip, who are we? Who is the Spirit? And who is the world? So just rhythm. All right. Yep, here we go. Don't so stand on me. Go, to Can you ride a bike? One, two. You can chuck in a dip. Dip. Yeah. Do you think we'll be ready by the 14th? No. Oh, that chorus, it picks up. It you hear it? Can you hear that? Yeah. Can you keep up with that? No, no. Again. Spinning. Relaxed. Move through graceful grace. Stop yep. tripping on me. Three, two, three. To move, yeah, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, just it. and then this wouldn't do the dip. What's wrong with the dip? No, nah, not contemporary enough. I've seen a move like this once, quite good. you watch watching, great, yeah, that moves particularly bizarre, <laughs> very tense. You well know, you don't, know, does doesn't matter two, if you're not looking one, at them, you know. Mates were good enough to sponsor today's service. (laughs) Who are we? The groom. Who's the spirit? His big mate. Who's the world? The other mates. Did you spot the sister? Got a big smirk on her face as he started to dance. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great little piece of what we're doing. So as one flawed, not very good dancer, but still present Christ-following disciple to another, the question then comes to me, what else is useful to dig up about this whole sanctification, perseverance thing? Well, listen to this. One of the most quoted and perfect will. Romans 1 to 11 is this vast theological treatise. It covers the eternal purposes of God, sin and humanity, salvation, baptism, the law, Israel, Jesus and his sacrifice, creation. It's huge. It's unique in the Bible in its scope and its sheer spiritual brilliance. Paul was a religious genius. Here are the standard works on Romans that are used in Kerry College. They're written by the same guy. This is called Little Moo, by Douglas Moo. But for those that are really serious, this is Big Moo. There are Bibles smaller than this. I could pile up from here to the ceiling books on Romans. No sweat. Written by faithful Christian scholars and more than a few dodgy ones trying to get their head around the meaning and implications of those 11 chapters. There's an awful lot stuffed into those 11 chapters. I think there's a bit of um, heterozycosity as well because I think the whole grafting um, branches and is covered in eleven and 10 and 11 when it's talking about the relationship between the Israel of the Old Testament and the church. But here in Romans 12.1, he just says... Therefore, given everything that's gone before with its implications, here's the one thing I want to draw out to start with. Here's the so what. Here's the meat or the vegetable matter pretending to be meat in the burger. And he wants us to chew on it for a bit. It's a signpost, therefore. Application is coming. Point is coming. And the passage is the first thing he draws out of this sweep and he urges us. Now, urge is not a polite word. It's got (coughs) body behind it. You might need a tissue. If I was urging you to do things, you wouldn't want to be in the front row. Yeah, I've noticed. (laughs) I could almost urge to you. (laughs) What does he urge us to do? He urges us in view of God's mercy to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Now that's a strange line. Now the people that this was first written to, the pagans would have been very familiar with sacrifices because they did those in pagan temples. And the Jews, well, yep, bulls, lambs, doves were sacrificed at the temple. But one thing that all the sacrifices had in common, pagan and Jewish, was that the animal was dead. Stone cold. And yet here we are told to be living sacrifices. Which is another one of those little paradoxes, a contradiction in terms. I think Romans is calling us to live our lives on the basis that we wholly belong to God. Just like a normal sacrifice, would you stick it on the altar and gone, it's not yours anymore. You couldn't make a sacrifice on the altar and later come back and stick it in your pocket and take it home. It's like you can't come back to our donations box later on, rifle through it, find your cheque and take it back. And if you tried, Emma would come after you. (laughs) She knows where you live and she has a unique set of skills to bring to bear on you and you might not be the same again. You're stealing from your God Not a good thing to do. And if you pull it off, make sure you've got dry, rubber soled shoes on on your walk home. We are to be living sacrifices in response to God's mercy. He's spared us from the inevitable consequences of our sin in His Son Jesus' sacrifice. He's talked about this at length in the preceding chapters. And now we are being called on to live lives wholly devoted to God as our worshipful response to all that he's done. This is our true and proper worship. Now, worship includes prayers and singing spiritual songs, as we've done this morning. But Paul here is extending that to the totality of our lives. It's pretty big. He's saying, I think, that you can worshipfully mow your lawns, worshipfully raise your children or do your work, whatever it is. It's in all the bits and pieces of our lives we've been called to have the Lord in view and what we are doing to sort of see it as an act of service to him. Then there's another strong statement laden with meaning. Do not conform to the pattern of this world begs the question of how our society and its values differ from the ways of God's kingdom. What is the pattern of the world? Well, I've got a few thoughts. I think, if I look at the folk I know and the things I see in the media, there's a finding of our security in money, status, or power. Anything that is not your place in God as his beloved child. Now, late last millennia, Steph and I were the off-campus pastors of a Christian group at Victoria University, it's called Student Life. And one of the best and brightest leaders we had in that group was a girl called Sue. In the end of her degree, Sue told us that her stepfather, who she adored, had got her a job in his big corporate outfit that he was part of. And that was the last we saw of her. She wanted his approval more than anything in the world and there was somehow not room for her faith in that. She chose her stepdad over her heavenly father. We grieved that loss. Another one is to perform for the crowd. So my worth is the sum total of everyone's good opinion of me. Now one of the best singers in the 1970s was this person, Karen Carpenter. Apparently she had a three octave range, which is okay, they tell me. She had the world at her feet. But she became convinced that she was fat. She delivered full-on anorexia, which eventually led to her premature death at the ripe old age of 32. I reckon that photo was taken about half a dozen years before that one, to perform for the crowd. Another one, to achieve your own dream. Like many live for but never quite achieve, so they get frustrated and bitter, my very talented uncle died recently in his late 80s, was eaten up by his inability to become a famous artist or a famous musician. He was still railing against the injustices of it, blaming various other family members right up until his death. Sad. And then fourthly, there are many people who make it and are ultimately disappointed. They get to the mountaintop and look around and think, eh, it's not quite so great here. In rock music, they have what's called the 27 Club. You heard of the 27 Club? A few. It's a list of famous rock stars who died at age 27. Now, I love the music. Here's three of them. It's Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, Jim Morrison. I love their music. All of these three people at the, actually probably not even the peak of their career, Kurt Cobain had donkey's ages to go, so did um, Amy Winehouse. They're living this intense spotlight, they found it hard, they turned to drugs as a coping mechanism and it didn't end well. They got to the mountaintop and actually the weather up there wasn't too flash. The world's patterns are fickle and finite. But there is an alternative. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Note that it doesn't say you transform yourself, be transformed. It's passive. It's not going to be changed by us. We're going to be changed by God's Spirit. He is the unseen actor in the sentence. We are the canvas. He is the painter. And then there's a result you have an outlook and a worldview such that you will have a much stronger sense of what God's will and ways are. You're starting to see why tomes get written about this? Theres two verses. I was talking to a good mate of mine this week who's walked with God for 40-odd years as well. And he said, you know, I don't have the sense of God speaking to me in the way that I did years ago. Which has surprised me because he's a, a wise and a godly guy and I've learned a lot from him. And so we teased it out. And the answer, I think, is actually over those 40 years, his mind has been transformed and renewed to such an extent that God doesn't have to come in and go whammo like that. Actually, his remade and reconformed mind tends to get it right first time. He's in tune with God. I see it in myself a bit, that my reactions to things now are much wiser and more nuanced than they would have been even 10 or 15 years ago. Look, Romans is hard. Peter in 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16 said that Paul's writings are quite hard work. Yep, onto it. But if you take the top layer of Romans 12, 1 to 2, it's actually quite straightforward. It says this, firstly, worship God throughout your life, in season and out of season. When you're here on a Sunday morning, helping the kids with their homework on a Monday evening, hang out with the in-laws on a Saturday afternoon, be aware of the unseen guest in your interactions with the world. That's the first one. And second, cooperate with his promptings to refine you. If you're unsure what his agenda in your life is right now, ask him and talk to the wise heads in your life about what you think you are hearing from him. We are in this together. Christianity is not like tennis, an individual sport, it's more like rugby, no surprise there. It's more like rugby, it's a team sport. So worship and engage with what the Spirit is doing in your world. Amen.